Um, I watched the Olympics prior to getting shot and I saw a boat race and it just, it did something to me. I felt some kind of adrenaline or something I never felt before. And during rehabilitation from the accident, so it introduced several things, tandem bike rides for people with disabilities, weightlifting, um, tandem roller skating, and rowing. And when I asked them about the rowing, they said, yeah, that's exactly it. So I went down in 1999, rode the mile, and from there it was, it was a wrap. I mean, I was in love and I was hooked. It was like, how can I get better? And the years that followed, it was just a matter of just having the right people come along to guide me to get me better. Today we'll be talking to Dwayne Adams. We'll interview him. He is the yeah. He's the executive director of Breaking Barriers Rowing and Fitness in Delaware. It's yeah, Delaware. it's it's uh, he started his nonprofit. It's an organization. The organization mission is to help other disabled um, bodied youth and senior citizens with health choices, with nutrition training, conditioning, mobility, and increases the chance of getting a rowing scholarship. So he is definitely um, a start putting his foot in a big pond for the adaptive um, youth and seniors um, and getting some rowing scholarships out there for them. That's it's a big important thing. Yeah. So. Yeah, definitely not a small order by any means. But no. I mean, these are opportunities and barriers, opportunities that need to be made and barriers that need to be broken. And Dwayne's killing it. So. Looking forward to hearing. It'll be mostly Patricia interviewing him for this since it is Black History Month. And well, as a Filipina American, I want to, you know, take less of my space as I am not a black lady. Um, so having Patricia take the helm on this interview. So, Patricia, take it away. Yeah, so we're going to be talking to Dwayne Adams about his organization, about his rowing experience. Um, his the good the challenges the whole thing we'll get a couple of his stories he has i would like to say he has some really good stories that he'll be telling us about um and i have some very tough questions that i'm prepared to ask him um and hopefully it goes really well and he has we all have fun i think it's supposed to be just really fun and i'm super excited because i know not a lot about Dwayne, but I'm hoping to learn so much more about him through his experiences. Because rowing is so, as simple as it is, it's so complex and everyone gets different views of this one sport. So I want to hear his views as a man of color in rowing, um, who's been in rowing for a long time compared to me. <laughs> My seven years have nothing on Dwayne. Oh, <laughs> <I love> Dwayne. <laughs> Yay. You want to get started? Yes, I am. Okay. <laughs> Let's do this. Right. So why don't you just tell us a little bit about yourself and your experience in rowing? Like, where did you start? Where are you now? And, um, yeah, we'll go from there. Well, um, my name is Dwayne Adams. Um, I started rowing in 1999. Uh, I'm, uh, I'm from Philadelphia. 
I was an innocent shooting victim in 1998 where I sat on my steps and took a straight bullet that entered in my left eye, went across my face and lies behind the right eye. Wow. And actually they removed the left eye, uh, no sense of smell and partial sight in the right eye. So my vision is classified as 2200. Oh my so if you and I were standing side by side and looking at something 200 feet away, I would have to walk 20 feet away from that object to see it in the light that you see it in at 200 feet. So um, that's the vision that I had. That's the vision I probably had the rest of my life because uh, the bullet shattered nerves. So that's the partial sight. Um, I watched the Olympics prior to getting shot and I saw a boat race and it just it did something to me. I felt some kind of adrenaline, or something I never felt before. And during rehabilitation from the accident, someone introduced several things, tandem bike rides for people with disabilities, weightlifting, um, tandem roller skating, and rowing. And when I asked them about the rowing, they said, yeah, that's exactly it. So I went down in 1999, rode the mile, and from there, it was, it was a wrap. I mean, I was in love, I was hooked. It was like, how can I get better? And the years that followed, it was just a matter of just having the right people come along to guide me to get me better. That's amazing. Your story is very empowering um, for a lot of people because I think a lot of people have joined rowing because they've had challenges in their lives and it's helped them get past it. So that part is really amazing to hear. Um, when you first joined your rowing team, what did that team look like? What was it in 1999? What was that rowing team built of? How many people? What did they look like? What was their background? Well, the rowing team actually was adaptive rowing. And I think one of the benefits of the vision was, you know, as rowers, you know, we don't have to see where we're going since we're going <laughs> backwards. Yeah. So there was, there was a blessing. Um, but I personally wanted to get stronger, trying to understand this every year that passed, trying to get stronger, understanding my body and what was needed to win. Because I did have that, um, I called it the Michael Jordan syndrome, where you see Mike just didn't want to stop. He just kept going and going and going. So that's what I was doing. But as we teamed up and started racing, um, I was racing with everybody from uh, a, a double, a quad, an eight. Whoever I could jump in the boat with, I jumped in the boat with. And I can remember one time, excuse me, somebody was wrong with me, and they said, in the race tomorrow, I'm wrong with Dwayne. And then everyone started laughing. And they said, what you laughing at? So the coach came up to them and said, listen, I rode with Dwayne before. If you talk to him nice, he might slow down some before the finish line. <laughs> Because he, he will not stop until he crossed that finish line. He said, you see, they say, yeah, if you don't keep up, he'll take the boat up the river by itself. And, you know, um, that was, that was the, the name on me. I, I just, you know, because we all know you catch a crab is over. Yeah. You know, the, the race is over. Um, if you have a nice lead and catch a crab, it's a possibility. If you don't win, you can still first, second, I mean, second or third, you know. So my whole thing was get as big a lead as you have and don't think about crabs. And if you got a big lead, put more of a lead on it if you can. Don't let nothing, you know, until you cross that finish line, don't stop. 
So my team was, um, if you're talking about when we won the bronze medal in 2002, that was made up of a young lady from California, a gentleman from Florida, another young lady from Philadelphia, and a Cox was from Philadelphia. And that's the team that won the bronze in Seville, Spain in 2002. But up until that time, I rode with a little bit of everyone. That's amazing, especially in 1999, where I'm quite sure rowing wasn't as diverse as it is probably now. Um, what would you say, like, how do you think, what are some challenges as you being a person of color have you faced in rowing? Um, I can say this. When you go overseas, you treat it, uh, you treat like Kobe Ryan, Michael Jordan. I've had no issues at all overseas. I got a lot of respect from the coaches. I was always told to walk through the town with your USA uh, uniform on, a jacket on with the USA logo big on the front. And when practice was over, we was free to do whatever we wanted to do unless, you know, we you know we had our curfew time. I would go in town. <laughs> I wouldn't care. I would go in town and I'd walk through town and I would speak to people. Some didn't speak in Spain, you know, nasty, and they didn't speak English. So, you know, some did. And, you know, I walked in there, stopped at the store, bought an ice cream sandwich, walked through, seen my first siesta. You know, nobody was out. And the lady pointed to the clock, and at 12 o'clock, she heard a bong and shutters open, and music started playing. It feels like somebody just said action. <laughs> and everybody came out. It was great. And no one caused me any problems at all. But here in the state, um, you will face that from people who are not understanding. I'm not going to call them prejudice, but just not understanding that the sport is becoming diverse, will become diverse, and you do have some people there. Now, I can tell you one experience I had when I was in Pittsburgh. And we had a, um, I would say it was a hair race. I cannot remember the distance. It was it was a nice distance. And um, before the race started, it was about maybe 7 in the morning. It was cold that morning. It was just above them shutting down the river. So it was like 38, 37, something like that. I don't even think it was 40 yet, degrees. And um, I had my gear on. You know, I had my, you know, wore my, my um, pieces down there because it was cold instead of flip flops. Had my tights on, a long shirt, pants, and my jacket on. Um, I had my ski cap on because, you know, it was cold that morning. And I had another jacket on top of that until, you know, I raced in my jacket. And I'm walking around looking at the course, looking around and everything. And this, uh, this white young man, uh, I couldn't even tell you his age, he was, he was definitely younger than me. Um, I seen him walking towards me, he walked up to me, he looked at me, he looked down at my toes, he looked back up to me, and then he hopped and spit at my feet and walked away. <laughs> I, I looked down and I'm like, really, did he, did he just do that? And not too long after that, you know, they came to get me, said we had to get in our boats. So we went and got in our boats and it was a double. And uh, I told my partner, I said, um, 
ready for this race? He said, yeah. And when I looked over, I seen a familiar face. It was the same person that stood at my feet. And I said, um, listen, I'm going to tell you now. If you don't row this boat up this river, I will carry this boat up this river. The race started, and we took off. And I mean, it was a picture. When I showed people the picture, you could see the strain, because he, he was steering the boat. You could see the strain in his face from, from trying to keep the pace that I was putting on that boat. I mean, you could actually see it in his face, but it was hilarious to people who looked at it. So we crossed the finish line, took the boat in, uh, we drove up there so we had to hit the road to come back. So we took the boat out, cleaned it down, loaded it up on top of the truck, and they was announcing winners of races. And when they got the hour race, we won. So I went to get my medal, and when I got my medal, what I did was I put the medal around my neck and I started walking all around that course. All anywhere I could walk at before we left, I was walking. And my purpose was not to hit him, not to spit at his feet, but just to show him that I won the race. And this is what it's about, not what you just did. And hopefully that will put some kind of message in him. But I never saw him again. There was one incident that I really remember that happened um, that was uncalled for. Yeah, no, that definitely, I think... I've personally never had to deal with that, and I'm I am so glad. And what he did was so disrespectful. Um, hopefully, maybe he'll even hear this podcast when it's released, and he'll remember that, and he'll remember like where he's at now in his life, and then where you're at. And then this is a big lesson. Like you never know who anyone will become, and you never know when you're racing in the wrong world. It's it's anything that matters is what you put in that boat. It's definitely not. What you think about when you, who has the better shoes, who has the better gear, who's racing the most expensive boat. It's the work you put behind that, the oar, when you're actually in the water and you're just taking off the race course. So that you, I think you taught a very important lesson to him, to a very young man. Hopefully he understood it and he took it. Um, but that was a very important lesson. If you could tell someone looking into rowing now in this generation, one thing that about the sport, what would it be? Your heart. I think, um, like, you know, right now I have a nonprofit organization and it's based on teaching the youth, growing, even though I have, you know, senior citizens and veterans that come in and train also. But I let them know that, you know, a good percentage of it is your strength and ability to be able to handle this long or the, uh, the weight of the river and the people in your boat and the boat weight. All that is. You know, it comes up when you even know it's divided among all of your, your, your partners and teammates in the boat. But a lot of it is mental. And the same mentality you have in that boat can take you to life and things out that you have to deal with from what they say that you have peer pressure from um, teachers not understanding them, et cetera, et cetera, parents. All of those things, I really believe that that discipline can definitely help you move to that next step. So if you can conquer the part of the rowing, the physical and the mental, it helps you with life. And if it helps you with life, then you're able to deal back with the rowing again. Because all of us know we've been in races where we've been pulling hard and inside that little that little voice, either he's inside or he or she is on your shoulder and say, Go ahead, stop. 
Your teammate got you. Go ahead, don't pull this hard. Just go through the motion. Your teammate got you. You know, they're not going to know who's not pulling. You can feel it in the boat, but they won't know. Go ahead, stop. But then you have something in that competitive nature, and you say, no, I'm not. I, I trained for this. I'm prepared for this. Mentally, I can do this. If I, I fall out, I'm going to fall out going across that finish line, regardless of the place. I left it all in this boat on the river. If we can teach our youth to understand the mentality of rowing, the discipline of rowing, all aspects of it. That will help them be a great rower, but it'll also help them be a greater person in life and to share that with others that come up behind them. Yeah, I agree. I think you need so much support to get through it, but you need to have your, you need to be able to push yourself to some extent to keep going in the sport. So you said the one thing you did mention just now, you said the, your family and your friends you need that support. Did you, when you were an athlete, did you have your family and your friends, were they support system for you? Were they part of the rowing? Did they do the, um, a lot of, row, rowing is really big. It's really known for having a lot of uh, parents who do the tents and, you know, who makes the food, who makes sure the kids have the warm, the hot cocoa when they get off the water. Was that something you had when you were on a team? Yeah, and, and my biggest supporter was my mother because <clears throat> when an accident happened, she was right there and, and, and she really helped save my life. Her, she had it. it was a duplex we lived in. She lived on the first floor at the second floor apartment. And when an accident happened, I never lost consciousness. So even with both eyes shut closed because of the trauma of the, the bullet and I couldn't see, I was still able to hear on top of the rain in my ears and be aware of where I was at. So I crawled up the steps and banged on the door and she dragged me in the house. So as you can imagine, a mother seeing her son in that condition, being calm enough to call 911 and then later on, <clears throat> excuse me, cleaning the steps off of all the blood, then turn around and find out he's going to row and she comes out and watches him perform. That's a lot for any parent. So she was there with her barbecue grill, anything I needed. If I had two races, one in the morning, one in the evening, she made sure I was able to lay down and someone came with a talking, like, let him sleep, let him get his little nap or whatever. And the only thing she did that I, I didn't know about till later, somebody said, when you rowing and you come there up, she's actually running alongside the, the bank of the river cheering, technique, technique. <laughs> <laughs> And they said one time they thought she was going to just run right in, but she's running. I said, really? They said, yeah. So one race I was in, and I, I actually had a, a, a big lead. I had over a three-boat lead. And I hear this noise on, the, on my porch side. So I actually am rowing, and I'm turning, I'm looking, and even with my vision, I seen a figure running off alongside the dock. <laughs> I mean, the, the, the bank. And it was my mother. And I'm like, they were telling me the truth. So she was my biggest supporter. Then I had, you know, my nephews, they would come out. Uh, uh, my aunt would come out. And um, I had a couple friends. Only a couple friends came out. But when the boathouse road shut everything down for a regatta to drive, then all my friends would call me like, you know, I'm mad at you. Because we take the drive, we can't take it because they're having races, so we can't go down there. But those were my core right there. My mom was the main one. We went to war banquet, she was there. When I traveled overseas, she was there. I mean, here's something 
You didn't ask the question, but I'll tell you a story and tell you what my mentality was. I spent a month in the hospital after I was shot. I had a cousin. My cousin was a gangster. And when I say a gangster, if you harmed his family or anything like that, he will shoot you. I mean, no ifs, ands, buts about it, he will shoot you. He hung in the streets, and and I don't know if he shot anybody else out there. I don't know. But that was him. <clears throat> he called me in the hospital. and said, hey, cuz, how you doing? I said, I'm good. He said, oh, listen, uh, you know how I feel about hospital. I will come and see you, but you know how I feel. I said, I understand. So he says, listen, um, we know where the guys are that shot you. Now, what happened was where I was sitting at my mother's house is quarter block away across this two-lane street was a tree. And at that tree on this other block, um, which is Park Avenue, guys stood there selling drugs. And what happened was another group of guys came down, arguments came, both started flying. But that's where the, the shot came out. I found that out later on. So he tells me, we know where these guys are. I got three guys in the car with me. We got all our guns and everything. All you got to do is give me the word and we'll go and shoot that whole tree up. My first response right away, no hesitation was, don't worry about it. Because we got them. We know we, we can go up there right now. All you got to do is say, it should go. I said, you know what? Don't even worry about it. It's not worth it. He said, all right, we're not going to do it. You know what I said? We're not going to do it. We're not going to do it. You take care. You get better. I said, all right, thank you. So from the time I was able to get consciousness and able to talk and, and, and hear what's being asked of me, besides talking to the detectives when they came in and everything else, my mentality was not revenge. It never occurred to me. When I got out of the hospital a month later, my mentality was not uh, drugs. It was not alcohol. It was not cursing people well. It was not being mad at people. None of those things was in my head. What was in my head was first getting out of the hospital. Once I got out of the hospital, I lost so much weight. The next thing was a weight on my body. And then I couldn't see everything like clouds. I couldn't see nothing. Then the vision slowly started coming back to what I see now. Those were the steps. And then along those steps came running. So that's how my mentality was thinking about things. It wasn't going here or there where I see people that are visually impaired and they just mad at the world for no reason. That's how they deal with it. Me? was something inside that was that higher force inside that had something better for me down the line, even leading up to me talking to you today. Um, let's be honest, prejudice is out there. It ain't going to change. <laughs> it's going to be there till we didn't pass and our kids come up and they pass. I, I don't, I don't think it'll ever change ever. I mean, you know, and I speak honestly, it's in the White House. It's in smaller places. It's in, uh, rural towns and cities and then big cities. So when you take up rowing or any other sport where minorities aren't the, the majority or really aren't in the sport at all, you're going to come across something. So if that's the 
sport you choose to do, enjoy that sport. Do the best you can in that sport and bring as many others as you can into that sport. If you could tell your younger self, now that you're an adult, you've had that support, you had the friends, you've been part of the road world for so long now, if you could tell your younger self one thing to prepare them for the challenges, for the excited, for exciting moments and experiences that you've, you've faced through your life and you're probably going to continue facing in as long as you continue rowing, what would that be? Oh, that's probably the toughest question I ever had. <laughs> so. uh, <clears throat> I'll be honest, I really wouldn't know what to tell myself because um, when we get into the sport of rowing, we really don't know what to expect from the sport because it gives us so much as far as um, the mental aspect, the physical. The only thing I, 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 I think I can tell myself is um, just keep an open mind, open heart, and, and prepare yourself for our challenges that come in front of you. And don't stop. Treat it just like a race. You don't stop until you cross that finish line. And this is a continuous finish line until we cross it. But it's, it's, you know, like when I went into it, I, I didn't know what to expect. I didn't know some of the accolades I would get from doing something that I just fell in love with. That, you know, um, some of the articles written on me, you know, they went and said this saved his life. And it, it probably did. I didn't look at it that way. But um, it, it did a lot for me. You know, I have awards from the NAACP. Um, I have the numerous medals from different states, the bronze medal. Um, I was able to travel, magazine articles. Um, it helped me with my nonprofit now. I met so many friends that invited me to come, um, visit them and roll with them from the Great Britain team to the Canadian team. Um, it, it's been a blessing all the way around. So when we step onto that dock and get into that boat, you don't know what to expect, but it's going to be something definitely good. You can learn more about Dwayne Adams on BreakingBarriersDE.org or follow him on Instagram at BreakingBarriersDE. Thank you so much for listening to Rowing in Color. This episode was written, sound designed, produced, and edited and dreamed of by Denise Aquino and Patricia Destine. Many, many thanks to our podcast advisors. You know who you are. And lastly, please follow Rowing in Color on Instagram at Rowing in Color and leave a comment, a like, or both. Thank you for listening and see you next time.